0: we nominating deacons in two weeks. On January 30th, we'll have our family time, and we will be asking the church to nominate uh, men and women who you feel would be spirit-filled and spirit-led to lead our church in ministries of mercy. And we ask that you would be in prayer for that time. And um, one of the questions we received is, um, does the qualification one-woman man mean that a deacon or deaconess has to be married? And we believe that the answer to that question is no. Um, That qualification, one woman man, would not prevent a single uh, man or woman or a widower or a widow from serving as a deacon or deaconess. It's really more of a heart issue. It's more of a character issue, um, speaking to the, the heart and the life. And so our heart at Cornerstone is that both single uh, men and women and married men and women will served together in the deacon ministry, so please feel uh, free and encouraged to nominate uh, single men and women uh, to the deacon uh, role. Another question we received was, uh, can a wife uh, serve as a deaconess even if her husband is not a deacon? And we believe the answer to that question is Yes that uh, husbands and wives are gifted differently. Some wives are gifted for the mercy ministry and uh, mercy um, ministering and compassion ministry, while their husband may be gifted in other ways. And we would want wives to serve in the deaconess role, even if their husbands are not serving as deacons. If you have any other questions, please feel free to talk to Jason or myself or Elder Bob or uh, Pastor James, and we'll be happy to discuss these with you And once again, in two weeks, we'll be nominating uh, deacons and deaconesses, so please be in prayer uh, for that time. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open to uh, Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, and our scripture reading is going to come from verses 3 to 8. And the title of this morning's message is Merciful Relationships in the Church. Merciful Relationships in the Church. Philippians 1, starting from verse 3, Paul writes this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. As you know, these past number of weeks, we have been exploring the theme of mercy in the scriptures. We've we'll been learning together that our God is a God of mercy he is a God of compassion, that he is a God of pity, that he looks upon the helpless and the poor and the needy, and his heart is moved with affection, and his heart is to reach out and love and his service and to embrace and to meet those needs. And the reason why we know that our God is a God of mercy is because God has been so merciful to us. Because we know that that we were the helpless. We were the poor. We were the needy. We were the ones who were desperately lost in our sin and in our darkness, and God had mercy upon us. He saw us, in our pitiful state, and his heart went out to us. His affections were moved, and he embraced us in love, and he sent his son to die on a cross in order to save us from our sin. And because we have received such mercy from God, we know that our God is a God of mercy. As we have been seeing the merciful heart of God in the gospel, our heart as Christians have been to become merciful people ourselves. We want to be like our Father. It's like any son or any daughter who looks at their dad. And they just We want to be like our dad. Our Abba Father, He is so merciful, and so we want to be like Him. We want to be like Jesus Christ. And so we want to express love and mercy and pity toward those in the world. And we've been learning about how the church does that, not just only in their emotions, but also in how we structure the church. How Even in the church, there are offices, deacons and deaconesses who are meant to mobilize and to lead the church in mercy ministry so that the church becomes a culture of mercy. This has been such a tremendous study these last number of weeks. I know our hearts have all been encouraged and all been blessed. This morning, I want to take our thoughts one step further. And I want to talk about this morning how we are to have merciful relationships in the church. How we're not just supposed to have hearts of mercy toward people who are out there, people who are in India, people who are in Africa, the orphans and the poor of our society, but we are also to have mercy in here. In the relationships we have in the body of Christ, in our fellowship with one another, that the church is to be a fellowship of mercy. And we are to have love and compassion and affection for one another because God has been so merciful to us. These last few weeks, I've been just taking time and just, just remembering the mercy of God in my life. Just remembering how 14 years ago, how I hated God, how I blasphemed his holy name, and how I spat upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And instead of damning me to hell like he should have done, God had mercy on me. He looked at me and said, Dan, you deserve hell, but, but I'm going to love you. My heart will go out to you. I will embrace you and love you and you will be my child. I have sent my son to die for your sins, and how God forgave me of all my transgressions and all my sins, and he had mercy on my soul, and how every day of my life since then has been a day of mercy, that I wake up every day and say, Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. How merciful God has been to me. How merciful God has been to you. How merciful God has been to all of us. That we would be called his children. That we should be forgiven of all our sins. And as I've been reflecting on how God has been so merciful to me, I've been asking God to give me a heart of mercy. And I've been seeing in light of the gospel how my heart is not a heart of mercy. My heart is a heart of law. I demand justice from people. I'm not a compassionate person. I don't have affections for people who offend me. I don't naturally have pity upon the poor and the helpless. I'm just asking God, God, I need you to break through to my heart. I need you to soften my heart. I need to have a heart of mercy because I want to be like you, Lord. And as I've been reflecting on this theme over the last number of weeks, I've been realizing that sometimes mercy is hardest to show to the people we know the best. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, sometimes mercy is hardest to show. It's not to it's not people who are out there. It's to the people who are in here. I mean, I can look at slideshows of orphans in Africa, my heart is moved. I'm stirred to affection and pity. I can hear reports of stories of the poor in India, and man, my heart is moved with compassion, and I just want to do something. But to people who we know the best, people who we've known for a number of years, people who were acquainted with all their weaknesses, all their failures, all their sins, all their weird quirks, people who we are most familiar with. Sometimes that's where it's hardest to show mercy. And I just wanted to bring us a reminder from God's word that as we pursue a culture of mercy in the church, it's not just to people in the world, but it's also to people in here. It's also to our relationships in the body of Christ. I just want to remind you this morning and that I believe the Lord wants to do some heart surgery in our hearts this morning. And that this morning's message is not going to apply to the Christians that you're happy with. It's not going to apply to the Christians who have always blessed you. It's not going to apply to the believers who are mature, who are godly, they have done nothing but serve you. It's going to apply to the Christians that you struggle with. the ones who have hurt you, who have disappointed you. It's going to apply to Christians who are weak, who are struggling. Christians who, maybe if you, you see them across the room and you see another believer on the other side of the room, you kind of just naturally gravitate toward the godly believer. Because you don't, you know, you don't want to be rude, but maybe you just don't care to fellowship with that other Christian. It's going to apply to the Christians that have disappointed us. And I would just add this special application for those of you in Cornerstone who have maybe come to this church from other ministries or other churches, like I have. I was at another church for more than 10 years before I came to Cornerstone. And I would say that a special application for you is that it's going to apply to people in former ministries who have let you down. Maybe they've done you wrong. And even to this day, you carry heartache and bitterness with you because you've been wounded through former ministries, through former leaders. And God is going to do heart surgery in our lives and, and call us to a heart of mercy because he has been so merciful to us. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that there's going to be difficult people in the church. He said, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. He's basically saying here that we're all in process. The church is not filled with mature, godly people. The church is filled with both mature people and immature people. The church is filled with Unruly people, the idle, he says, the undisciplined, people who are kind of out of control. The church is filled with faint-hearted people, uh, people who are timid, who are not courageous, who are always fearful, always anxious about something. The church is filled with, with weak people, with people in your care group who are always struggling. They never have an encouraging thing to say. Every week you share prayer requests and they always say, I'm defeated, I'm struggling. He said, do you ever have a good week spiritually? Because it's been a long time since you've shared anything encouraging and they're just weak. And Paul says toward those people in the church that we need to have a heart of mercy. He says, encourage them. Admonish them. Build them up. Be patient with them. And so this message isn't going to apply to how you view God, you know, godly people, strong people. It's going to apply to how you view Christians who have let you down. And, and God's going to just encourage us that if we want hearts of mercy, that we can't close our hearts. We can't become cynical. We can't become jaded that a merciful heart feels compassion upon every believer in Christ. As I look back on the 14 years that I've been a Christian, I just have had many believers who have blessed my life and many believers who have disappointed me, both leaders and people who I've led. And without the gospel, my heart is critical my heart is, is jaded. My heart gives up on people. But a heart of mercy is one that opens up its heart toward those who have hurt and wounded you. In Philippians 1, verses 3 to 8, we find three things that a merciful heart feels when looking at other believers. We're going to find that a merciful heart, when it looks like other believers, feels, number one, gratitude for the past, number two, confidence for the future, and number three, affection in the present. Let's look first of all at the first thing. A merciful heart feels gratitude for the past. Verse three, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. As we noted before, Paul was a man who never, who had experienced God's mercy. He writes in 1 Timothy 1.13, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. He was a man who never got over his conversion. He was a man who never got over the wonders of his testimony. He he was a man who never got over the wonders that God, a holy and sovereign God, would reach out and love and save him, the worst of sinners. And he says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I, I'm the chief, I'm the first, I'm the worst, and God saved me in order to be an example to everyone that Jesus Christ can save sinners. And that's why he came. His heart had been shaped and had been moved by mercy. And because Paul was a man who had experienced God's mercy, he says in verse 3 that he, his heart is moved with affection toward other believers. He says, I thank my God In all my remembrance of you. And I just want to note here that, that brothers and sisters, this is not platitudes. This is not Paul writing a Hallmark card. It's not just nice saying. This is honestly how Paul feels about other believers. He says, Every time I think of you, my heart is filled with nothing but joy. Every time my heart remembers you, I am filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. You are my greatest joy, Philippian church. And even though I'm here in prison, even though I'm facing possible death, even though I'm in the darkest of circumstances, even though other people are criticizing me, I rejoice here because I have the two most important things in life. Number one, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And number two, a relationship with people who love Jesus Christ. And if you have those two things, it doesn't matter what else you have in life. If you have those two things, you're rich. And he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. And you are my joy. You are the reason I give praise to God. You might be saying, well, that's because the Philippians were a perfect church, right? I mean, how can you look at another church and say, every time I think of you, I have nothing but joy, nothing but thanksgiving. How can you say that? It's because they were a perfect church. My brothers and sisters, they were not a perfect church. The Philippians were a good church. They were in many ways a model church. They didn't have major problems like the Corinthians did or like the Galatians did, but they were like us in process. They had been saved from the penalty of sin. They had been saved from the power of sin, but they had not yet been saved from the presence of sin. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul has to exhort them to unity because maybe there was rumblings of disunity in the church. In chapter 4, verse 2, he has to tell two sisters, Yodia and Syntyche, you two sisters, get along. Because these two sisters couldn't work it out. And he actually said, calls a third party in, a guy named True Comrade, He says, true comrade, you come along and help Yodi and Syntiki to work out their problems because they keep fighting in the church. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, you have revived your concern for me, Philippians. And the translation is that there was a gap where you didn't show concern for me. There was a time period where it seemed like you weren't concerned, but now you've revived your concern for me, and I rejoice in that. The Philippians weren't a perfect church. And yet, Paul can look at this church and he can say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, is making my prayer with joy. Every time I think of you, I have nothing but joy. And the reason is that their relationship was rooted in a transcendent reality, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your koinonia, your sharing, your fellowship, we share together in the transcendent message of Christ and Him crucified. There's nothing greater in life than that because our hearts have been knit together in this one great message. Every time I think of you, I have nothing but joy. I want to bring a practical application from this text to our hearts. The practical application is this. Gospel-centered relationships have a short-term memory. Gospel-centered relationships have short-term memory. And what I mean by that is that when the gospel is at the center of your relationship with another believer, you have a short-term memory when it comes to, to anything that's evil, anything that's deficient any disappointment, any heartache, any hurt, the gospel gives you this desire to, yeah, deal with problems when they come along, resolve problems when they come along, but just to move on and to forget quickly and to have nothing but sweet memories. The the gospel gives us Long-term memories when it comes to blessing, to kindness, to goodness. We remember how people served us. We remember how people invested in us. We remember how people prayed for us. We treasure all those things and we we have long-term memories when it comes to blessing. But when it comes to evil, we forget. We have spiritual amnesia. The Holy Spirit gives us this blessed forgetfulness. When we look back on our history with other believers, we don't remember the faults and the failures. All we remember is the sweet memory, and we can say of other believers, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because the gospel is at the center of our relationship. And I will just ask you this morning as we look at this text, is that your heart toward other believers? Is that your heart for believers in your history? Can you look back on your history with other Christians and say, you know what? I have nothing but sweet memories, nothing but joyful memories of all the blessings that God has given to us. Or would you look back on your history and you just you have heartache and pain and things that went wrong and things that we didn't agree on and things that and and you you just treasure those things in your heart? And you rehearse those evils in your heart until you become bitter and you become cynical and you say, my heart, I don't want to ever open up my heart again because relationships are too painful. Brothers and sisters, gospel-centered relationships have short-term memories. We forget. We just forget. I had a conflict with another brother, I think this past year, and and. We went at it for for two hours and just trying to resolve this issue between us. And at the end, we resolved the issue. We affirmed our love for one another. We prayed together. We prayed for each other. And I can honestly say to this day, I don't remember what the conflict was about. I don't remember what the issue was. But I remember the unity at the end. I remember the prayers. I remember the affection. I remember how we loved each other. I remember those are the things that I cherish in my heart because that's the fruit of the gospel. The gospel enables you to just forget the evil and to cherish the good. And so you look back and you can say to another believer, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. How easy it is for us to get critical. How easy it is for us to in our to get wounded. And if you haven't been wounded by another believer, you, you just not you don't have relationships because we're all sinners, and, and if you get close to anyone, you'll get hurt. So you if you're saying this morning, well, Dan, I haven't been hurt by another believer, well, then you don't you you don't have relationships in the body of Christ? Because this is who we are. We're saved sinners, but we still sin against each other. Can you look at the Christians in your life and can you have gratitude for the past? Again, I want to make special application to those of you who've come from other ministries, other churches. And as you look at your history with other ministries would you be merciful in your evaluation of how other leaders have invested in you? When you look at the memories of being under other leaders, would you be merciful? And if there was anything good, if you learned anything from a Christian leader or servant, If there was any blessing, any fruit, would you look at that and just say, praise God, that God used that person in my life to produce this, because I wouldn't be who I am without that person investing in me. And would God give you a heart of blessed forgetfulness to just forget the rest? So you can look back and say, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. And the reason why I say that, brothers and sisters, because 10 years from now, you know what, you're going to look back on your current leaders now at Cornerstone, and we're going to need a merciful evaluation from you as well. Because we have flaws, and we have weaknesses, and I'm sure we will hurt you as well. And we all just minister by the grace of God. The first thing that a merciful heart feels is gratitude for the past. Let's move to a second thing a merciful heart feels for other believers, and that is confidence for the future. Confidence for the future. Paul looks at the past and he has nothing but joyful memories. Paul looks at the future and he says this, verse 6, and I am sure of this. Literally, I am absolutely confident of this very thing. There's one thing I'm convinced of. It is this. That he... Who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What a statement. Paul looks at the church with all its failures, all its flaws, all its sins, all its heartaches. And he says this, I have confidence in my heart. I'm not upset. I'm not disturbed. I'm not running around with bitterness in my heart. No, I am confident of this one thing. That God is going to make you perfect. God is going to finish the work that he started in you. He is going to make you like Jesus Christ... One day you will be blameless. One day you will look like Jesus. One day you will be without sin. One day you will be without your selfishness. One day your weaknesses will be gone. One day you will be like Jesus Christ because God started the work of salvation in you and he is faithful to finish the work in every single believer. No believer will be lost. I am sure of this. He's going to make you like Jesus Christ. Paul Viewed believers in light of what they will finally become. And he never lost that goal whenever he saw another Christian. He saw God's work in the gospel. He saw that God is working in you. God is perfecting you. God is sanctifying you. God is molding you into Christ's image. And he's not going to finish until he is completely done. And you look like Jesus Christ. I'm confident. And when I think of this verse here, I think of my boys and, and their Legos. My boys are so, I don't know, they just have this thing about Legos. They're always in the room with all oh, tons of Legos around. They spend hours there. They're always building something. And they have these diagrams that, you know, the, the regular Lego diagrams have gotten to be, I guess, too simple. So they make their own diagrams of things that they're going to build and robots and, and airplanes and spaceships. And I go in the room, and it's like a complete mess. And they have this half-built robot on the floor. And they look at this robot, and they say, there's this diagram on the wall, and they say, Dad, this is what's going to look like when it's done. And they're so excited about what it's going to look like that they're feverishly working to finish the project. And I don't see them in their room going, like, oh, man, this thing is lame. Oh, there's so many deficiencies because, you know what? It's not done yet. They're not discouraged. They're not criticizing the half-built robot. Ah, oh, it doesn't work. The arms and legs don't work. No, they're saying, it's not done yet, Dad. Wait till you see when it's done. When it's done, it's going to be awesome. When it's done, it's going to look like this. When Paul looked at the church, he didn't, he saw that it's a half-finished project. It's not done yet. We're in process. We're moving toward the ultimate goal. God has the ultimate goal in mind, and the ultimate goal is going to be awesome. We're going to look like Jesus Christ. And when you have the heart like this, when you can look at other believers, and with all of the weaknesses in their lives, look them straight in the eye and say, I am confident of this thing, that God is going to finish the work in you. He's not going to stop until you look like Jesus. When you can do that, you can have joy in your heart and you can say, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. No matter what has gone on between us. This was Paul's confidence for the future. He says, he began this work in you. God is the one who has initiated the work God started it. He called you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. In time, he effectually drew you to Jesus Christ. He opened your heart to receive the message of the gospel. He brought you forth by his will. He caused you to be born again by the living and abiding word of God. God is the one who has started the work. And he says, he who began the good work in you will. And he uses a compound Greek word meaning he will Totally finish it. He will absolutely complete it. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's joy in other believers was rooted in the sovereign work of God and salvation from beginning to end. He saw salvation as a work of God which God starts and God completes all to the glory of God. And he said, We are all caught up in this process, and because of that, I can rejoice. I can rejoice. Your failures are not going to get me down. Your struggles are not going to steal my joy. You can come to small group after small group after small group and share the same sin, same struggle, same difficulty time and time again. You're not going to take away my joy. You know why? Because God's working. And God's not going to stop working until he's done. And if God is at work in you, he will finish the work. Until the day of Christ Jesus. I remember one brother who was in my Bible study, and as a pastor, he caused me great heartache because the brother had a lot of issues, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of sins. And the thing was, he was so faithful to Bible study. I mean, he was there every single week. And sometimes it's like you know, you know, you don't have to come every week. You know, you could if you have a cold. You know, he came with a cold. He came on time, and he had he, every week. he was the same old. Struggles and heartache. And and every year, every year, he'd grow a little bit. Every year, he'd take one step toward Christ. Every year, there'd be one little shriveled grape of a fruit in his life. Just enough to know that he's a Christian. He's a believer. God's working. And I had to learn that I can't base my relationship with this brother on the basis of his maturity or his immaturity. I have to base my relationship with this believer on the basis of God's sovereign will to complete the work in his life. I have to be able to say to him that God has begun the good work in you and he will be faithful to complete it. I'm not going to fix you. I'm not going to make you perfect, but God's going to do it. And if God's going to do it, then we can persevere in this relationship. Because God never stops until he is completely finished. Can you look at another believer, that, that believer that the Holy Spirit is bringing up in your mind, and your heart right now, the one who has caused you pain, the one who has disappointed you, can you look at that believer and look him in the eye and say, I'm confident. God's not done with you. God's going to finish this work. I see God's work in your life And I know he's he's not done yet. I would encourage you in your thought process, in your as you as you think about other believers and as you every time you think of another believer's weakness, to add the phrase, but God is working. But God is working. This brother hurt me, but you know what? God is working. This brother has this weakness, but God is working. This sister keeps bringing the same struggle to church week after week, but God is working. And God's not going to stop until he is finished. I have one Christian friend that I've known for many years. We've known each other since we were spiritually young. And um, this is why I admire those who've been at Cornerstone from the very beginning, because... You guys have known each other since you are young, and you still love each other. You still, like, respect each other. If you would have known me when I was spiritually young, you wouldn't respect me. We did so many foolish things when we were young. And I have this one Christian friend known for many years. And um, we met each other in the middle of what we used to be and what we will become. We met each other in, in immaturity and weakness, we sinned against each other and disappointed each other. Um, at one point, I was so hurt so deeply by this brother that we had no contact for maybe one or two years. And looking back on this relationship, I'm just amazed by grace. I'm just amazed at the grace that God has given to us because today we have a heart of love and of unity and of joy together. We rejoice. We pray for each other. And God has given us this blessed forgetfulness that we don't remember. We just don't remember the heartache. It's it's in the past and and we don't bring it up. It's we just remember the grace that God has given to us, the ways that God has used us in each other's lives. And we can rejoice. Because I can look them in the eye today and say, I'm confident of this, that God began the good work in you and he will be faithful to finish it. Do you view other Christians in light of what they will become? It's a glorious thing, isn't it? Just to think about, you know, look at brothers and sisters in the church and just imagine what are you going to look like when you look like Jesus? Same you, same personality, but like Jesus without sin. And just imagine. What are you going to look like? It's such an encouragement to look at my wife and to say, what what is she going to look like when she's perfect? Not that I'm complaining now, but when she's perfect, wow. What is she going to look like? To know that God is going to finish that work. Paul, when he looked at other Christians, felt gratitude for the past. He felt confidence for the future. And thirdly and lastly, He felt affection in the present. He just loved people. He just loved the Philippians. You know, when you you look at the past and God has freed you from all the bitterness of what's gone on and when you look at the future and you see glory and you see that we're going to be like Jesus Christ, it just frees your heart to open up your heart with affection in the present. It just frees your heart to love Christians, just to love believers. Let them in your heart say, I love you. I'm going to open my heart to you. And that's what Paul did. Verse 7, he, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love how he says in verse 7, This is right. It's right. This is the only appropriate response to the gospel. Look how good God has been to us. Look how kind God has been to us. Look at how much grace we have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's right for us to love each other. It's right for us to rejoice in one another. It's right for us to have short memories and forget the evil and remember the good. It's right. A lot of times people think Paul loved people because he was naturally a people person, you know, he was just kind of this guy who went around giving everyone bear hugs. You know, Paul was Paul was a scholar. He was a Pharisee. He was a bookworm. He, I don't think naturally he was a people person. But the gospel had done this work in his heart, where he just says, "You know, this is right for me to open up my heart, open up my emotions, and just love you. And you're in my heart. You're in my heart because you are." are all partakers with me of grace. And when I see you, I see the gospel. When I see you, I see the gospel working. I see the gospel producing fruit. I see you receiving grace of justification, grace of sanctification, grace upon grace. Man, we're all just swimming in grace. And so it's right, it's right for me to feel this way about you. And then in verse 8, he does something very unusual in the New Testament. He calls an oath. He he makes an oath. He says, God is my witness. Because again, it's not a hallmark card. I'm not just saying words. This is honest truth. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Literally verse 8, he says, I'm homesick for you. I'm homesick. You're my family. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. When I'm not with you, my heart aches. I long to fellowship with you again because you're my home. And when I look at this, I can relate. Because this is how I feel about the church. This is how I feel about Cornerstone. This is how you feel about Cornerstone. This is this is more than a gathering. This is more than just a place to meet. This is our home. This is our spiritual home. This is where we have brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where we come under our Heavenly Father. This is where... This is the only place where people understand the true passions of our heart, which is Christ and his gospel and his word. No one understands those passions, except for people in the church are home. When I have to be gone from Cornerstone for one or two weeks, I'm homesick. I just can't wait to get back. I just can't wait to get through these doors. And I can't wait for, for praise to start. I can't wait for, for greeting time and, and, and to hear the preaching of the word and to go out at break and to see what kind of snacks the snack ministry has gotten for us. I just can't wait because this is my home. This is this is my family. It's the dearest place on earth because it's the only place where other people understand that what's dearest and nearest to my heart, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you understand the gospel and I understand the gospel, we have this heart relationship with each other that we understand each other and we love each other. And we long for this fellowship when we are gone. I know that you all, when... When you're gone from spiritual home, you long to be here. We can't wait. And that's what Paul's saying here. I long for you all. And then he adds, with the affection of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that you see all this love and joy and longing and affection and kindness that I have in my heart toward you. It's not me, really. It's not Paul. It's not Paul who has all these emotions. Paul who has all these affections. It's not Paul who's rejoicing. It's, you know who it is? It's Jesus living inside of me. The reason why I feel this way about you is because Jesus feels this way about you. The reason why I'm rejoicing over you is because Jesus rejoices over you. The reason why I'm longing for you is because Jesus longs for you. The reason why I want to have a relationship with you is because Jesus wants a relationship with you. I long for you with the affection of Jesus. Jesus has this heart for you, and he lives in me. And because he lives in me, his heart has become my own. And what you see in me is heart of Jesus Christ. I long for you with the affection of Jesus. And what he's saying here in verse 8 is basically this, that in the end, this passage isn't about my love for you. In the end, this passage is about how Jesus loves you. In the end, it's about how Jesus feels about you. You know, if you're his child, he... He loves you. He just longs for you. He rejoices. He wants you to draw near to him in fellowship and in worship. And he has this compassionate heart of mercy towards you. When we love each other in the body of Christ, when we show mercy in the body of Christ what we are doing is simply expressing the heart of Jesus toward one another. And we're just being instruments so that Jesus can love you, so that Jesus can love the church through our lives and through our heart. In the end, uh, this passage is a passage about mercy. It's really just a passage about how God has been so merciful to us He's been so good to us. And when we receive his mercy, God gives us this gratitude for the past that forgets the wrongs and just embraces the sweetness. God gives us this confidence for the future, which says we're going to all be like Jesus, and so let's enjoy each other along the way. And God gives us this affection in the present in which we love each other. With the heart of Jesus Christ. What happens as a result is that the church becomes a culture of mercy. The church begins to overflow with mercy. And the mercy that we have received here begins to extend toward the poor and the needy in our society and even all the way around the world, all to the glory of our merciful God. Let's join our hearts in prayer and thank God for this time. Our Father, we thank you so much for being merciful to us. How kind you have been to us in the gospel of your Son that you would send your beloved Son to die on a cross in our place. You take all of our sin and place it on Christ. You take all of Christ's righteousness and place it on us. That we may be beloved forever and ever. Amazing mercy. Amazing pity. Lord, make us merciful people to one another. Help us, Lord, to give us this sweet forgetfulness of any wrongs done to us. Give us memories that cherish the blessings, the joys, the sweetness, the way your grace has worked through others in our lives. And give us this confidence that you will finish the work in each believer you love. We thank you for your blessed word and the gospel of our salvation. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.